You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hello and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we are joined by Jacinto Sa, who is the founder of PFAL Plasmonics, a spin-out company developing transparent, direct plasmonic solar cells to power smart objects like IoT sensors. Jacinto is also a full professor in physical chemistry at Uppsala University and head of the Plasmonic Research Group. So, Jacinto, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Uh, and I guess we'll get right into it with the first question of, what was the process of discovering the technology that's at the foundation of your startup? Did you make the breakthrough via your Plasmonic Research Group? Uh, like, how did that come about? And then also, how did you decide to turn it into a company? Because that's obviously a big step. The first part is coming up with an idea and then building it out, but then you have to decide whether it's worth incorporating and spending a lot of your, your time and effort on. Uh, so I would love to learn a little bit more about that general process and story. Yeah, I, I can, I, often when I tell the story, people think I'm, it's a bit of glamour up to, to, to become an all you kind of story, but actually it was exactly how it happened. So I, Plasmonics is a fairly recent, um, well, I wouldn't say recent topic of research, but the, the area where you're converting light into electricity and potentially into chemistry, for example, with that electricity is rather recent. And this is because it was known that the plasmonics absorb a lot of light, a lot more light than any other material. So this was a property that was known. But because they are uh, what we call metallic nanoparticles, it was believed that that charge was uh, lived for such a short period of time that you could never extract it. So even if you think it's there from a physics point of view, taking this charge out, it's it was believed to be impossible. And that's why most of applications that came from the plasmonics is then from the heat that is generated from this light absorption. So about... Now, coming to about 13 years ago, I demonstrated that the charges were there and then eventually that we could extract them. Um, and then when you talk about charges, of course, there is a positive charge and a negative charge. So we demonstrated that we had both and we could take the negative one. And then, um, and then of course, we thought it was going to be quite uh, straightforward to prove that you could take the positive one. And that turned out to be a very, very difficult job that took us nearly three years and another three years to get the paper published. Um, and um, and at the time, really had no interest in photovoltaics. I, I plain honest, I think it's a field that is very much a, uh, driven by industry, which is fine, but I was considering myself a very much an academic person. So I never really thought in working photovoltaics. But in the process of actually going through this article to be published, it was very difficult to convince one of the reviewers, very common thing that academics go through. And, um, and it, the argument was, oh, if you take the positive, you cannot take the negative. It was this kind of thing that one of the charges will always stay there. And of course, if you want to make a solar cell, you need to extract both. Um, and that was one, one of my um, uh, co-workers here at, at Uppsala said, well, if you make a solar cell and you can see a current flowing, then you're extracting both and you can shut up the, the reviewer. And that's why we made the first solar cell out of plasmonics. We didn't really expect it to create a company at the time. 
and we put it there. And of course, we didn't want to make a good solo cell. We just wanted to shut up the reviewer. And, and, and the guy went and tested. It wasn't, of course, a very good solo cell, but he came back and said, um, I think your students forgot to put the material there because the solar cell is completely transparent. I said, no, 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 I'm quite sure there is material there. And they said, uh, well, you know, I never seen, and this is a person that has been working for nearly 30 years in all kinds of solar cell technology, including now the perovskites, said, I never seen something that really looks just like glass. You should really look into it. But probably he knew that I wouldn't care about it. So a week later, he came and said, have you looked into this? You really should put at least a patent on it. And that's a little bit how it started. We put the patent in Sweden. We have a very unique way of protecting the IP. So the IP is always with, so the intellectual property is always with the inventor, but they think very circular. So the university actually helps you file the patent, even if they don't have thing. And the process is you get involved with the incubator and then from the incubator, the thing. And that's what led basically to create the company because they said, well, there's so many patents on on solar cells, if you're not going to at least tailor it to a type of business, you're never going to be able to, to sell this, this patent. And that's basically what led us to eventually even become a, a, a solar cell research group, uh, partially, and, and then to create uh, P4 solar power at the time and now P4 plus ones. Wow, that is a really cool story. And I was also interested in like, how you publish both a scientific paper on your technology mm. and it's also a company um, because I'd never really seen that before. And so it's, it's interesting that you talked about how you wrote it first without the intent of creating a company mm. and then you patented it um, mm. and you went down the startup route. So I've never heard of that. And that, that is very cool. Um, something that else that I wanted to ask you was just to go a little bit more into mm. the basics of the technology. So your direct plasmonic solar cell converts light into electricity using plasmonic nanoparticles as the mm -hmm. active photovoltaic material. But for people who may not have heard of plasmonics, can you explain this technology mm -hmm. and its overall yeah. importance? So um, if, if you consider any type of technology, even the old silicon that we all very now, let's say, used to see it on top of the roofs and so on. And um, this is always using what we call... Um, uh, a gap type material. So there is an energy difference between where the electrons are and where we want to put them. Uh, and basically this is overcome by the photon, by the energy of the light that you, you think. And then of course you put the photon uh, into the material, the electron moves from this so-called valence band into the conduction band. If you connected this to basically an external circuit, you're gonna have a current flow. And then, of course, there is all kinds of things. You make smaller gaps to be able to maximize the solar spectrum absorption, uh, but then you have lower voltage. There's people that make slightly higher gaps to get higher voltage, but the physics behind is always the same. One photon of light will promote one electron from that valence uh, state, and you basically then extract it through the thing, which means that you lead to this pro let's say what we call the, the Schottky-Quisley limit, that is you cannot get more than 33% out of a solar cell because to have the gap, you're already going to lose a part of the, of the energy there to overcome the gap. Um, plasmonics is a metallic material, which means there is no gap. <laughs> That's already the first big difference. So the, 
And also the charge itself is not created directly by the interference of light with the electrons that are there. So what happens is light comes in and makes the electrons resonate. I always give an analogy as you throwing a stone into a lake. You throw a stone into a lake and you will see these ripples coming out in the lake. Now, if you didn't do anything, those ripples will go away and, and nothing will happen. But now imagine you do the same um, activity, but you actually throw the stone into a box inside of the lake. So of course you throw the stone, the ripples will, will be formed again, but they will hit these this, this walls of, of the box that you put there. And as they come back, they will interfere with each other and you will see these splashes of water coming out everywhere. In analogy, it's actually like that. The resonance is basically created by the light. The electrons will move back and forward in what we call an elastic process, like completely back and forward in kind of a concertina type thing. But as the light leaves, the electrons lose that kind of force that is, that is forcing them to do this. And because they are on very small nanoparticles, they very quickly start colliding with the boundaries of the nanoparticles. And in that process, you're gonna form an electron and holes as the process of what we call decaying of the plasmonic. Now, nowadays, the most advanced solar cell technologies or the most efficient ones like organic photovoltaics and perovskites, they use what we call transporting materials to extract charge more efficiently. But in theory, the material itself is already a solar cell. In our case, we have to use transporting materials to actually create a solar cell because our material, you wouldn't be able to extract the charge. You wouldn't be able to build the voltage since there is no gap. The gap is what defines the voltage. So in our case, for us to go from, from creating those carriers into actually extracted to get the voltage and the current that defines a solar cell, you need to put materials um, to extract this. And it's then the energy difference between that, those materials that define the voltage. Okay, interesting. That is such a cool technology. Like yeah. that is so interesting uh, to hear about. And right now on the website, I saw that you're using these printing methods to create mm -hmm. your solar cells, um, which is inexpensive and you can do at room temperature. And I'm curious, did you initially use different, more common deposition methods, like something like spin coating? And then this yeah. change that you started thinking about the commercialization of the product, or did you start there? Did you stick with pretty much the same foundational methods from the proof of concept to where your solar cells are now? So I, I think sometimes, uh, so from, from day one, I've been very uh, adamant that we need to use things that are both using environmentally friendly solvents, not necessarily needing to be water because as we printing very thin layers on top of each other, if you print, let's say a water layer material on top of another water layer material, there's a chance that you're going to damage. But you have, of course, also organic solvents that are environmentally friendly. Uh, so that has changed a little bit, but basically I, I've been very, because I, not only from a point of view of scale up, but then of, from a point of view of what you, type of instrumentation, what type of labs you need to have to create that solar cell eventually as a reality. But we do have the limitations of some materials at the time we didn't have, let's say, a formulation that we could easily print. So yes, in the lab, we have used sometimes things like uh, spin coating and so on. But those methods are very difficult to scale up. And, and the problem is that if you start very much not, or let I put it the other way around, if you don't at least consider that when you're starting, it's often very difficult to go back 
thing. And we have, for example, a couple of steps that we start doing in a certain way to kind of see that it's going to work. And now it's proving quite tricky even to convince people in the company to go back because that's not the way that we can scale it up. So I, what I always say to people is, while I understand that you want to, to prove something and there is different methods, there is always people call it this kind of rocket method that you throw in all directions and you try to hit one that works. If you don't consider the things from day one, um, at least on the back of your mind, often then you might get to the result you want very quickly, but to get to the next step is a big mountain. So I always say, I, I'm quite sure people making a car, they don't just think, let's make first the motor and then who cares about the wheels and the and then, uh, suspension and everything. Everything has to be kind of thought uh, true. Maybe, yes, they spend a lot of time on the development of the motor. But if you don't actually care about all these aspects from day one, very often then there is going to be a big hurdle to translate that into a kind of a more industrial process. And, and again, I think I see not quite a, I mean, we're using printing techniques that are very common, at least on the OPV um, uh, technology. So it's not something we invented. We also try to use materials that they already use because there is commercial vendors for such type of like ink type formulations. Uh, so as much as possible, we try to use everything that was already in the market because it doesn't matter if we make something extremely special. If we then have to be able to make 100,000 units, how are you going to be able to scale up there? So the only thing we really produce is the plasmonics, which is really the uniqueness that we have. And then we try to adapt as much as possible what has been done um, in, in the other technology. And that's also how you can leapfrog development because OPVs have been around for the next last 20 years. I would argue in the last 15 years, they have seen a huge uh, development. In part, the perovskites are using the same kind of uh, platform to try to scale up their, their, their production. And that's how you can go from a technology that three, four years ago didn't exist into something that is now on the kind of verge to start getting commercialized. Okay, yeah. So I like what you said about not thinking in, in the short term, but also thinking in the long term. So if you want to commercialize something, yes, in hindsight, for the proof concept, you might have to use like, you know, cheaper deposition method instead of going right to like this really big scalable machine, but you should have that at the back of your mind that once you have a proof concept, you have to start thinking about how you can change the different methods to make it something that could be industrially scaled um would it, would you be able to go more into the printing techniques that you yeah. do use and and why you decided yeah. to use them yeah so um i would say there is really three techniques we we use um they depend a little bit in what you're printing and 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 for what is the finality of of the of the process for i would say smooth substrates and 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 that you want to have any kind of, of, of size, um, I would argue then uh, this that we call slot die coating, which is basically just a knife where you flow the liquid through it and depending on the width between the two plates and you basically push it through, through the substrate and then you can basically control a lot of parameters that allows you to do a continuous layer of your, of your material. That is a very robust, Technologies, I would say, is probably the most used technology in organic photovoltaics. Um, and to a large extent, also perovskites now are trying to, to do it. It's um, um, So for smooth substrates like glass or even plastic, uh, 
where you don't have any curvatures or anything for um, that you want very very long continuous layers so no interruptions on the things uh, that's uh, um, a very good method since we are putting our plasmonics um, in a very scattered way not as a continuous uh, layer because we want to um, have this highly transparent colorless uh, technology um, we use a combination sometimes of spray deposition to for the plasmonics and slot dye for the transporting layers we also do often everything as, as slot dye. Now, if you want to then print a solar cell, because we are doing this for devices in a very specific part of the device, maybe you have already your device and you say, okay, I can put the, the solar cell in a little corner of, of my device. Then we use a common inkjet uh, material printing. So it's not too different from the way that you would print in, in, in paper. Um, the nozzles are slightly different so you allow for for material to be printed but the technology behind is very much uh being developed for for paper printing and people are using inkjet nowadays to print capacitors and so on so it's not it's nothing the benefit of this is of course you you can print it anywhere the substrate can be curved can be any type of substrate but it's relatively slow compared with slot dye, which is a kind of a continuous, you can, if you do it in plastic, it's, you can even do it what we call a roll-to-roll -roll process. So very easy to, to, to get to volume very quickly. So we, we, we haven't said, okay, we're only going to do slot dye. I would say primarily now we do slot dye because most of our applications that are we're looking at the moment really are flat substrates with fairly sizable areas, let's say. Um, but we have a couple of customers that really want the solar cell to be printed in a certain pattern, and that pattern can only be done by inkjet. Okay, that is very interesting to to hear about. <clears throat> Sorry, that is very interesting to hear about. And something else that I wanted to ask you about because you said that at the beginning when you were just doing basic experimentation that you weren't optimizing for a good solar cell. You're just trying mm. to make it work, um, and. That's something because I've been working in a lab this summer on solar cells. And that's something that I've definitely noticed as well is that you're just trying to see if the core technology can work and then you optimize. So how has the efficiency of your solar cells improved from the proof of concept to the current tech? Because I know transparent solar cells can be very tricky to master with regards to the efficiency as well. Yeah. So... Um, because maybe our technology is a bit uh, special in, in many ways. So the fact that, for example, our light absorber is not a continuous layer, that makes it already quite uh, tricky because the transporting layers then have the ability to touch each other. Um, I would say our biggest hurdle has really been scaling up in size. So we have come to a concept that works. It's transparent and colorless. Uh, so it's not just being transparent because transparent just means you can see through but it's also that there is no color and, and, and that's quite difficult to do with any other technology because the color defines how much light you absorb and we can do this because the plasmonics absorb so much more light than any other material. So we can play this, uh, let's say, magic trick to put something that is actually quite colorful, but it's so little of it that you cannot see. Um, so the, 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 the uh, let's say the biggest hurdle is really been scaling up the size and, and, and you have to think about what is the uniqueness of your technology, because sometimes you have to make compromise. You cannot just say, okay, we, we will continue on the same path, because also your, your 
let's say final product defines our, our limit. Everybody will want the most transparent, the most colorless technology, but they also have to know that if you don't put enough light absorber there, you cannot produce a lot of power. They are directly correlated. So it's not that we're gonna make a transparent colorless technology that will supersede any other dark technology. That's impossible. You will be cheating the physics. So, um, so you have to see what is the prime thing. So for some things, uh, people say the transparency and the colorless is the most important thing. You cannot sacrifice that in pro of having a more efficient solar cell. And then they know, okay, then it limits the amount of power output that we get. And they can compare, can we work with some of this power output and what else can we do? Can maybe we increase slightly the size and, and overcome some of the limitations? Because of course the power will increase with the size. Um, or can we sacrifice a little bit of this transparency or a little bit of this colorless? Um, because maybe the device is put at, uh, or the solar cell will be put against a gray device and maybe a slight paint of blue will not really make a huge difference. Like for example, our uh, smartphones have IoT glass and IoT glass always has a slightly faint color, but it's against the black background, so we don't, we don't see it. Um, and, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's, for us, the, the, the uniqueness is the high level of transparency and colorless. Um, then depending what we can sacrifice for the specific application, we can then increase uh, the performance uh, of, of the solar cell. But for us, it's been the biggest problem is to make uh, larger cells. And larger cells, we even talking of still very small cells, 10 by 10, for example, centimeters square. Um, because our, our solar cell is so thin, the layers have to be perfectly flawless without any pinholes and things like that. And that's generally quite difficult to do. Most of other technologies, they are a little bit less, uh, let's say, um, demanding because they put a very thick layer of light absorber, even if you have a slightly amount of pinholes, that will, of course, drop a little bit the efficiency, but it's not completely a, a, a go and no-go. We are basically on that situation. A few pinholes completely destroy our solar cell performance. So I have to say this has been the biggest challenge. And when it comes to where we were and where we are now, um, I think, again, we, we've been basically now looking at ways to scale up our production, both in size and in volume, in the way that we can use commercial materials for the transporting layers and that we can use robust industrial thing. And that means sacrifices some of the things that were easy to do when you're making a very tiny solar cell uh, now that when you're making a large solar cell. Because, again, if you become very sensitive to which class vendor you buy, then you're never going to be able to, to, to buy a, a commercial process. So we want, want to make sure that we put the glass there and if tomorrow the company we buy in the glass goes bankrupt, we can go to another company and buy glass and not having to redesign the entire process all over again. So this is, this is I would say, it's as what creates at the moment a lot of headaches on what we are doing. But, but uh other technology is different because there it's you're really competing for power. So you cannot really say, oh, I was 10% efficiency, but now when I'm doing it in industrial scale, I'm only 5% because that doesn't allow you to sell up this product because they are selling into a power market. So you have to compete with the leading performing technology like silicon. So if silicon is selling 18, it doesn't matter how much you say, 
oh, my technology is a bit cheaper and I can get it a bit faster into the market and so on, you're still comparing with 18%. So it's it's everything else is nice, but but you still have to match that 18%. And if you cannot, then I would say very difficult to get any technology into the market because there, the only thing that counts is how many watts of power can you produce? We are more... Again, powering devices. We we are not the final product. The product is the device, but the device will be basically self-sustaining power. So you don't need to charge it as often, or you don't need to to charge it at all. You don't need to change batteries. So that that's the the value chain that we are in. We are not really, let's say, the unit of power is what defines how good our technology is. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because I guess you're kind of playing into a slightly different market where it's not like I'm trying to create the most efficient solar cell. You're playing at a different angle where you could put it on many more devices and self-powering. So even if it's like 5% efficient, then at least you like you have the the added benefit of the transparency, yeah. which some people care a lot more about. Yeah. I understand. And, and of course, efficiency is a, it's a, it's a value that makes sense on power because the way that you calculate efficiency, you assume 100% absorption. That's why you have a black kind of technology or you aim to have a almost black technology because that's the, the way that you're going to absorb as much as you can the light. Um, and therefore, and then you have the premise that one photon of light will only produce one electron and one, one positive charge. But I already said plasmonics doesn't work like this. So when people ask me about the efficiency, well, if I measure the amount of light that I am capturing, I can have actually a very efficient solar cell because very often we cannot even measure how much light we are capturing and we still see power on the other side. So it's almost like a magic trick that that you actually can have. And again, the physics here doesn't limit us to 33% because you don't have a gap. Therefore, you don't have any more the limitation of 33%. But... And of course, we want to make it as efficient as it, as, as, as we can. Um, but again, it cannot be done at the cost of transparency, since this is the only thing that differentiates us from the other technology. So if we, as, as, if we decrease a few percent, then there is already some technologies that can start getting close to us. Um, and therefore, we are what we call always, we are on this so-called energy harvesting field so that I would say five, six years ago, this was still a very seen as a niche type thing. Now people realize, for example, on IoTs, that if you're going to get to the one trillion devices, you're going to replace 273 million batteries every day. It's just an enormous number of batteries that not only has an environmental impact, it has also a significant human impact. That is, somebody has actually to go there physically and take these batteries every day so so it's 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 it became clear that you need solutions that keep these batteries running for longer that you keep these devices running for longer then even think about sometimes i give the example we all have smartwatches and and so on and and we know what happens two days later maximum you have to put it to charge and you think like it's not a big inconvenience but uh even fitbit and so on i've said that if you would increase by 20 or 30% the lifetime of the battery, you would have almost 50% more usage of the people that already buy the, the, the smartwatch. Because we are generally annoyed by just the idea that you have to take the watch and put it to charge and then you forget it in the morning to take it to charge. And then, 
and that's and and just we're just talking about increasing slightly the lifetime that's suddenly you have almost double of the people using the technology that they already own that is really interesting to see how you approach that and that entire conversation was super full of learnings for me and it was very very inspiring to hear about your technology and how far it's come and also like the difficulties that you've gotten past because you've been working on it for so many years so um that is incredible to hear about and that kind of brings us to the end of the episode but before we close off i would love to hear three action items from you for listeners based on what we chatted about i think we need to 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 start thinking of energy a little bit different than we think today um i'm not saying that we should start all living like neanderthals and 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 go back to, to wood it's not what i mean but there is definitely better ways of using the energy um we know that that there is now war in, in in the world and that puts constraint on the energy market but we all can be a bit smarter about the way that we use energy and of course smarter solutions like iot's and so on can help us if we are a bit lazy that at least they do it for us Uh, so one thing is that uh, the other one is to uh, get out of this kind of idea that everything has to be a silver bullet. The silver bullet is having so many technologies allowing us to do different things at the same time. Some technologies will be good for one thing, other technologies will be good for other things. It's good that we have maybe four or five technologies competing for the same market because they will push each other. Um but we shouldn't go down that bandwagon that one thing will solve every single problem so i hear a lot of the time people say oh but they said this technology will say yeah listen to all the context of what the things were being said it's it's not possible that we expect that suddenly one thing will solve everything and then the last thing is related to that that is basically technology can only help us so much um if we force that every 10 years technology has to solve a very very big problem at some point something has to give up and that happens with any technology then we start to use toxic things we start mining things in countries that probably don't have the conditions to allow the people there to have a good life because our pursue for environmentally friendly environmentally thing like batteries and solar cells that materials still are coming from in a very way in often from very very uh, poor countries and also in a very very environmentally friendly way that is being uh, extracted so we should give time to technology i mean if you really create huge environmental problems every 10 years and you expect the technology to just completely solve them in a very short amount of time it's 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 becoming and i i I said you know my generation was the ozone layer we thought it was a very difficult problem to solve but in the end it was changing one series of chemicals it wasn't really as big as it is today the last thing that is really is that we shouldn't also despair about things i think we have very much these two camps the people that despair and the people that just say i don't care <laughs> we we should all care we should all be, take serious the climate change it's really happening i mean i think most people saw what is happening in europe this this year drought almost everywhere very hot weather everywhere but we also have time we still have time to fix things we still so we shouldn't rush and push solutions maybe that then are becoming in in hindsight then people will say we should never have used them 
um, because they were not researched properly, they were not developed properly, they were just very quickly pushed into, into the market. So I don't think we need to go to bed every day thinking the world is going to finish tomorrow. We still have time, but we cannot keep saying, oh, somebody else will do the, 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 the work. We have all to do the work. We have all to, to get engaged and demand from our politicians and our companies to become more sustainable to move into things that really help us in, in the future and bring everybody because it doesn't help that we only solve the problem for the rich people. It's We have to develop this for the world because the entire planet now is connected. I really love those action items. Um, and thank you so much for, for going into that, for telling us about your company, your process. Like It has all been so interesting to hear about. So thank you so much for your time today. I Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. Also.